0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. I think it's safe to say that even a casual observer of the United States Congress would likely conclude that the atmosphere, the interpersonal atmosphere there is not awesome pretty deeply suboptimal. It seems like the two parties are constantly at each other's throat. The personal relationships that reputedly used to exist across the aisle uh, seem to have dissipated, if, if not just simply disappeared. So this week, we're going we're to take you inside a really interesting experiment that's going on across the pond in the British Parliament. 150 members of parliament there have taken mindfulness training programs. Many of them also sit regularly in private confidential groups where they meet across party lines and and apparently create real friendships and share some pretty deep stuff. Obviously, this has not created some sort of brigadoon. Um, The whole Brexit situation is clearly pretty choppy, to say the least. But – this experiment has apparently made a real difference. Um, so we have two guests this week. One of them is Chris Rowan, who's a member of parliament from Wales. He's been serving since 1997. He says, and you'll hear him say this, "Hey, he used to be the kind of guy who would scream and shout on the floor of parliament. And that, has, uh, that he has subsequently, post-meditation, undergone a real personal transformation. So his story is fascinating. The other guest is Jamie Bristow, who runs a think tank. That emerged that that grew out of these efforts to teach mindfulness to Parliament. It's called the Mindfulness Initiative, and they research how mindfulness can change public policy and healthcare, incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. So that's coming up first. A very quick item of business is very quick. I just want to uh, quickly highlight one of our favorite meditations in the Ten Percent Happier app. It's called uh, Training the Mind, uh, uh, or more specifically, Jeff Warren's Training the Mind. Jeff Warren is. A very good friend and an amazing meditation teacher. Uh, if he if he was a personal trainer, this meditation session uh, would be kind of his full body workout. He takes you through five mental qualities that he believes are important for a well rounded meditation practice. Uh, if you want to go check that meditation out, you can just click on the link in the show notes, or uh, if you are a subscriber to the app, just go in the advanced and unguided section of the singles tab. All right. Go check that out. Uh, Now, though, here's Chris Ruan and Jamie Bristow. Uh, We talk about you're going to hear us talk about how mindfulness can boost positive relationships and communication in high stakes adversarial situations, how it can reduce unconscious bias. Uh, We talk about the difference. And this is really from Chris when he gets very personal. The difference between living based on intrinsic values versus extrinsic values. So when you're living based on what's meaningful to you as opposed to what's meaningful to the culture or somebody else like your parents. And we talk about whether this kind of uh, mindfulness experiment could be imported here to the U.S. So here we go. Here's Chris Ryan and Jamie Bristow. Nice to see both of you.
1: It's good to be here, Dan.
0: Let's just start with some biography. Uh, I'd be curious to hear how each of you got interested in meditation. And by the way, give me, give me the proper
1: title. How should I address you? Well, uh, Chris. Chris, <laughs> just as simple as that? No, 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 absolutely. I'm Chris Ruan, the Member of Parliament for the Vale of Clwyd, which is in wonderful Wales. I'm a Welsh MP in the United Kingdom Parliament. And I got uh, into meditation, not mindfulness, 32 years ago. Uh, I was a t- primary school teacher for 15 years and then an MP on and off for 22 years. And as a primary school teacher, our school was being inspected by Her Majesty's Inspectorate and the staff got the jitters, they were shaking. So the school principal brought the nurse in and she taught us tension and relaxation throughout the body and to use the breath. And it, I, I got so much out of that that I wanted to use it with the children in my care. So I started meditating with 40 eight and nine-year-old children and doing the breath and doing visualizations and uh, it just worked for me. It worked for them. Yeah, and you stuck with it over time? Uh, no, I, I practiced it uh, for about four or five years with, with the children. And then I came across mindfulness about 12 years ago when I was helping my daughter Seren, which is Welsh for star in the sky, um, with, her, uh, with her homework, comparative religions, came across Buddhism. I didn't realize the centrality of mindfulness meditation to Buddhism. So I downloaded some podcasts from Spirit Rock in California I say, some it ended up to be about three hundred podcasts. Wow, you went deep. <laughs> about twelve years ago, and I've listened to them on the uh, journey on the train down to London, um, two and a half hours, on the way back. And from th- your district, from my district, on the in Wales, yeah. And
0: we should say, Spirit Rock is a, a venerable meditation retreat
1: center in Marin County. That's uh, right, in California. And Gil Fronsdal was—I mean, they had visiting artists on the on the, pod, on, on the podcast, but. Bill Fronsdale was the kind of anchor man who I listened to for for six years and and practiced meditations. And I got so much out of it that uh, in 2013, I thought, uh, or 2012, in fact, I thought that Parliament could benefit with this. We'd just come through uh, the expenses issue, where the expenses scandal, where lots of people were burnt out. Expenses
0: scandal, we should just say say that there, there were members of Parliament who were basically busted spending government dollars for personal stuff. Yes, yeah. Uh,
1: and so, uh, and so some of it leg- illegally, and, uh, and so some, I think, three or four members of parliament went to jail. Uh, and some of it legally, but uh, people felt it wasn't moral. So there was a whole review of, of expenses. There. And pe- people were still stressed, like three, or four years later, still stressed now. Uh, so I thought I, sh- I should have introduced it at the time but uh, about two or three years afterwards I thought I'll take it to Parliament and I contacted Professor Richard Layard who wrote a wonderful book, Happiness and New Science and The Good Childhood. Uh, Richard is a professor at the London School of Economics and a Labour Lord and I knew he was well connected in, uh, in the well-being world. So I approached him and he put us in contact with the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, Professor Mark Williams and Mark came down with a wonderful teacher. Chris Cullen. And we introduced our lessons in January 2013. And over the past six, six and a half years, 250 parliamentarians and 350 members of their staff have had mindfulness training.
0: All right, I want to go deep into that. But first, let me just, Jamie, let me get your background (laughs) real quick.
2: So um, I came into this story anyway, um, when I was working at Headspace in 2012, they're a little 14. known meditation, little known meditation to, app. To, well, to, they yeah. were little known back in the day, anyway. <laughs> they're yeah. not little known now. No, no. we're all any, all of us in the <laughs>
0: meditation game are standing on your shoulders, figuratively, because you were the you guys were the first meditation app.
2: Yeah, and then back in those days, there was about nine people in the organisation and five desks in a small business centre in North London. And now, of course, they have hundreds of staff in in California somewhere. Uh, so I was um, – um, well, let me, let me rewind and just talk about where, where I got into Great. Yeah. Um, mindfulness and meditation um, first off. So I, I was lucky enough to come across it when I was in university. There was a meditation society, so you know I joined the ultimate frisbee club and the football club and the meditation club. <laughs> and by football, you mean soccer? <laughs> oh, I mean soccer, yes. of course. Proper, proper football, <laughs> <laughs> the real deal. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, and so it was just one of those things I picked up and tried, and you know did it for a few months, and it came and went, and <clears throat> it was just another you know experience. Uh, and then I um, I graduated. I I got into a um, uh, like a, a big creative agency, advertising agency in London, like a global network. I was working too hard, you know, I'm working long hours. And the culture there was like drinking every night and then drinking too much coffee the next day to get over the night before. And surprise, surprise, I couldn't I couldn't concentrate for the whatever it is, the crazy ten, twelve hour days I was I was trying to do. And so I came back to, to meditation in order to be a better advertiser, in order to focus um, focus better. But with that self-regulation benefit that a lot of people come into this stuff for, um I also and then sort of moved on to self exploration. Realized there was kind of more to to me and and to the world than um, than I originally thought there was, and that and that led me to really question what I was doing there, um, whether advertising was right for me, whether advertising was, was right for the world, and um, um, changed my life and ended up in a climate change campaign. Like, uh, so I went from selling Nissan's. Nissan's as I think they, they called <laughs> <them> over here. Yes, <laughs> <Nissan. Yes. laughs> Um sending four by fours um and then a few years later, you know talking about how we desperately need to to, to reduce our uh, our carbon emissions to for the survival of our society so um uh that just yeah lit a fire underneath me really that was I realized that 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 mindfulness was what sort of changed my perspective on things, and so I thought, well, maybe if more people knew about this then then they would also sort of be more sensitive to the information that's out there. And change their perspective also, so that led me to um, yeah try to get a job at Headspace, turned up and said, "Hey, do you want to uh, do you want to take me on?" Um, that led to being a volunteer with the Parliamentary Initiative that, that, that kicked off in 2014. So the politicians had been already been practicing for a year or so on this eight-week mindfulness course, and they started to become interested in the science behind what they'd been learning. And the policy implications in health and education, criminal justice system, and so I was one of fifteen to twenty volunteers and experts who 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 showed up to um, help them to create a cross-party group, an all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness, which is like um, it's kind of like a student society actually for backbench MPs, so those who aren't in government, um, to help them come together on on an issue of mutual interest to inquire into. Um, that that area and and make recommendations for government um so i was um i was actually enlisted on the on the criminal justice strand of that inquiry and we had um eight events in in parliament eight hearings uh, over twelve months and and pulled together um the uh the mindful nation u k report and so I was just one person on the team there, but then I was asked to take over as director so um i've been running the a charity uh an education charity, a policy institute, which uh, supports the, this this group of politicians, helping them do what they do. That's the Mindfulness Initiative. It's the Mindfulness Initiative, And we owe yeah.
1: a great deal to it. And to Jamie as well. Good <laughs> man. Um,
0: so let's go back to the beginning of this Mindfulness Initiative that you provoked, Chris. What was the reaction from your colleagues, the other MPs, the other members of Parliament? We've had on this show before um, Tim Ryan democrat from ohio who's now running for president absolutely um and he uh is a very public meditator and he started uh what's called the quiet time caucus in the united states congress and to my knowledge he's gotten zero actual members of congress to meditate a lot of members a lot of staffers but no last time i spoke to him no members of congress were publicly talking about this uh, at least i think maybe some of them had talked about it but they weren't doing it with him yeah. So anyway, not a huge buy-in. How, how, did, you, did people smirk at you when you started talking about meditation within a political context?
1: Yeah, uh, well, uh, initially, yes. Uh, but we had 22 members of Parliament and members of the House of Lords, peers uh, on the first uh, class in January 2013. So there was some buy-in. Uh, and I was the recruiting sergeant, and I would pitch it differently to different MPs, MPs that I knew were struggling I would sit down in the House of Commons tea room with a cup of tea and sit down and talk to them about their issues and say, listen, there's a, a nice uh, intervention called mindfulness. Come along and see how uh, how you feel. Uh, other MPs uh, that, that were perhaps suffering, and I've been very fortunate uh, that I haven't suffered with mental Ill health, in, Ill health in my life so far. I pitched it as a, a flourishing activity. Uh, other MPs, perhaps shadow ministers, uh, I would say, look, Education is part of your portfolio, part of your brief. Uh, health is, criminal justice. Why don't you come along and, and see what uh, mindfulness could offer you as a, a shadow minister?
0: So it was different. Can you just quickly define what a shadow minister a shadow, is? Well, we we don't you have yeah, that here. Yeah,
1: you have a, a government ministers uh, for 22, I think, different departments of, of, of state. You'll have a cabinet member, and then you'll have ministers underneath that cabinet member for that department. And there will be a shadow of that for the opposition. So the opposition, if there's an education uh, secretary of state for education, there'll be a shadow uh, secretary of state for education. Gotcha. So they shadow each other. So I would. What party are you in? I'm I'm a Labour Labour MP. And were you only
0: uh, recruiting from your own party?
1: No, not 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 at all. We we took a cross party approach, left and right. Sometimes extreme left, extreme right, extreme centre. MPs and uh, peers would come together. They'd leave the politics at the door, and we'd sit and meditate, uh, sometimes in silence and uh, uh, sometimes guided. And we'd have uh, discussions afterwards. And we'd express our vulnerability in in those uh, uh, oak panelled select committee rooms where we delivered our uh, our mindfulness uh, uh, practice. And And nobody was leaking information? Nobody was leaking, (laughs) uh, and we've had no leak uh, for for six and a half years. And, you know, some people have spoken about their alcoholism, uh, their neglect as as, as children. They've fallen vulnerable in front of others from different political parties, and there has been. And I think it's in the expression of that vulnerability that those bonds are strengthened, the bonds of friendship and uh, uh, understanding. And it is beginning to change the dynamic of discourse in Parliament. Uh, Tim Lawton, who's I'm the Labour co-chair. Tim Lawton, MP, is the Conservative
2: co-chair. And he speaks, what's the terminology he uses? He says that um, there is, there's, there's an affinity amongst those who have been on this mindfulness course and a rather more considered approach to exchanges of differing views. In other words, politicians are starting to report that they disagree better and they can mm. have better dialogue. Mm. Yeah.
0: But it's
1: not all... Uh, rainbows and unicorns, as I like. <laughs> no, no, because absolutely, it's, it's you, not the age of Aquarius. Absolutely, you guys had something <laughs> called Brexit, <laughs> Brexit, uh, and it uh, had something. We've still got yeah, it, and we'll be suffering from it, it for just, decades to yeah. come.
0: Well, you're, but you can't figure out how to actually do the exit
1: part. No, uh, um, absolutely, and it's, it's, it's. You know, life's about ups and downs, and political life is about political ups and political downs. And it just feels like we've had a three-year political down, where all we've talked. About is Brexit. We've made virtually no process, uh, no progress. And some of those who were in favour of Brexit three years ago, when the uh, when we had the referendum, said, "You know, this will take five minutes to do. Once we've voted for it, we'll just sign these papers, and Brexit will be there. It'll be one of the easiest acts that we've ever passed." And that hasn't been the case. And there is there is massive pressure in Parliament, which is and there's massive pressure in the country and even within families you know different generations generational differences and it's it's i mean david cameron um, in giving the british people a referendum has sown the wind and we are now reaping the whirlwind and now more than ever we need a practice an intervention that can help us stay balanced in these
0: turbulent times do you think um if you didn't have this that the brexit conversations would be even worse
2: I, th- I think it's still a real minority of yep. people who have been right. on the doing course, it, and, and particularly those who have really committed to the practice over time. Yeah.
0: What well, would you say the percentages of of members of Parliament who have done the course? Well,
2: members of Parliament, so mm-hmm. the main House that's uh-huh. been and doing, then there's uh, the house negotiating of this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's about 150 members of Parliament who have been on, on the course. Is that right, Chris? Yes, and
1: about 100 uh, peers yeah. from the House so that, of Lords. That, and
2: that's out of 600 plus.
1: No, that's out of 650 MPs. 650, yeah and uh, 700, uh, 800 peers now. Exactly. So the numbers sound big, 250. Peers are members of the House of Lords. Peers are members of the House of Lords, yeah. So the numbers sound big, and impressive 250, but that's out of a total uh, population in Parliament of uh, something like 1,400 members of the Lords and members of the Commons.
2: So we've got this small kind of, um, small group that's starting to say, well, only a few years ago they started to say this could be um impactful on political culture. And then they started to say, it has been. I have different relationships. I find that I talk differently to people, different tone, dip, bring other things, bring more of myself into the into the conversations I have in this in this house. Uh, and then in the last six months or eight months or so, we've actually seen demonstrations of that in the chamber itself. So there was an there was an intervention um just before Christmas where where, where Tim Lawton really took the heat out of the room. There was people were kind of baying for blood almost uh, in a now infamous exchange during prime minister 's questions, which is our kind of weekly punch and Judy um, like question and answer with the prime minister and he just it's called- an amazing
0: spectacle by the way yeah. <laughs> before you tell the story about t- tim lawton um, the, for those of you who don 't follow british politics you 're forgiven except for maybe by the two people I'm talking to right now but <laughs> okay, by me yeah. you're forgiven they, they do this thing once a week right where the mm, prime yeah, minister comes good. in and just fields questions from a whole group of uh, the members of parliament in the mm. house right there on the floor of the house of commons and it gets it's pretty hardcore it's like mm. a press conference but you know these it's from fellow politicians not not journalists and uh they're screaming
1: yeah and the the design of the chamber in the house of commons is uh, it's it's designed like a bear pit it's not circular. It's, it's 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 not in an arc. It's it's directly well about four or five paces away from each other. So and they're, they're banked seats going up five or six uh, rows, and it is like a bear pit. And you have them. What's a bear pit? A bear pit is where they used to pitch <laughs> uh, to two bears to fight against each other. And um, you've
0: got the you've got the different like parties I, on each side on, in on, these banked. Uh, on, uh, the
1: banked and the the. And I used to be one of the worst defenders, but. Really? Mm. I, uh, th- I have uh, a hard time
0: imagining <laughs> <laughs> So you would scream and shout? I, uh,
1: on occasions. And uh, and uh, I asked the Prime Minister uh, uh, of the United Kingdom a question about mindfulness in February of this year. I'm not sure if you can uh, get, get, get the clip. But uh, I asked the Prime Minister a question and she an- answered uh, very knowledgeably about uh, mindfulness. And then the Speaker of the House of Commons, he intervened and said, the Honourable Member used to be very uh, kind of uh, boisterous and (laughs) loud-mouthed in the chamber, and he has changed his behaviour. So I got a pat on the head (laughs) from the Speaker of the House of Commons, so it must work. (laughs) Okay, so back to Tim Long,
2: who again is
0: he's the Conservative co-chair of of the Mindfulness.
2: Yeah, so there's there's, um, this practice group in Parliament, and then there's also the policy initiative. So we're not kind of assuming that everyone who practices is interested in how this might be applied across society. Um, but some of them are. And so we have this all party group, which has two co-chairs, Conservative and Labour, to inquire into how this is being applied ac- across society. And that's where I come in. OK, so I don't do the teaching of people in parliament, but I do the talking about mindfulness in society. So. So, yeah, but back to parliamentary um, questions. Uh, and uh, there there was yeah, a lot of heat in the chamber. Uh, and Tim stood up to ask a question and uh, his his colleagues were going like, "Go on, Timmy, go on," <laughs> to to like ramp it up basically. Uh, and instead, he just took a took a pause, took a breath, and just said, "Calm," in a really like you know big way. And and the whole sort of yeah the fever pitch dropped a few a few degrees, and then just you know went, went on to ask what he wanted to ask about education funding. And it's only a, you know these are tiny things, but I think they're like baby steps or you know <laughs> green shoots. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't overstate what we you know what what individual mindfulness practice um, can do on a group level um, without some kind of group dialogue about how we want to change the culture together towards something that is more more mindful and more considered and more responsive rather than blindly reactive. I hope that will come when more politicians have have got that personal understanding. Um, but we've had, like, in the member of the House of Lords, there was a debate a month or so before that, and we had... Uh, three different political parties represented where people said um, there should be more mindfulness in our international relations um, was the first intervention. second one was well, there should be more mindfulness uh, in, in the way that we uh, work with the cabinet. And then someone else said there should be more mindfulness uh, in this house it, and gave a really good definition of it and said that we should have more of a mindful approach in the House of Lords. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's quite recent, this development, where it's becoming part of the public record that politicians are calling for a different type of discourse.
0: Do you, Can you genuinely forecast a near future where you have a much higher level of buy-in and where you do see the kind of behavioral changes on the floor of the houses that you would like to see?
2: The, the what, Another tipping point we've seen recently is around mental health more broadly. And so in the last four years... The public discourse around um, men- we all have mental health. Um, we should all talk about it. We should all find treatment when we need it. And we've got problems, uh, and we should be doing preventative things to bolster our mental health. Has um, in the UK at least shifted a huge amount, and that's because the royal family, the, the young royals, have come out um, and campaigned about mental health. We have like you know, grime stars, you know, rappers. We have sportsmen. Um, we have politicians all saying like you know I, i've had issues and i'm there now And here, so so um uh that's been enormously helpful it's just shown us how quickly you can have cultural change um and i think we're starting to get kind of crit- critical mass both in parliament and in society because the numbers we're seeing and this is reflected in the u.s i believe is that the number of people who have meditated um is getting towards like 15 16 percent of the population and if you look at how new technologies and new trends are taken up, that's the kind of point where it jumps into a mainstream conversation.
0: I mean, I think you have two trends in both countries simultaneously and probably interrelated. You've got, um, and maybe more than two trends, but uh, you've got a growing embrace of meditation and you've got record levels of anxiety, depression, suicide. um, And you've also got this introduction of technology, which does enable the dissemination of meditation, but it is also, on a more pernicious level, enabling people to be more isolated, cut off, stuck in social media, uh, cul-de-sacs where they're comparing themselves to other people and feeling, um, you know, lesser and et cetera, et cetera. So a lot going on, these sort of interrelated self-reinforcing trends that some of them negative, but I think the meditation part of it is really riding on some of this and and I think could be a, a positive force. I'm not poly, I'm not sort of Pollyanna about this, but um, no, I do but, think uh, it could be positive.
1: And the, 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 there's a tsunami of uh, mental ill health that's sweeping the world, and the Western world especially. Jamie and I spoke at the uh, United Nations on Friday, and the UN, or the World Health Organization, says that by 2030, the biggest health burden on the whole of the planet will be depression. Well, not mental health per se, just depression.
0: Wait, say that again, because that's,
1: that's worth it. The- the, United, uh, the, uh, the World Health Organisation says that by 2030, by 2020, uh, depression will be the second biggest health burden on the planet. By 2030, it'll be the biggest health burden on the planet. And at the moment, we are dealing with depression primarily through drugs, through antidepressants, and that's important, and drugs, antidepressants have a, have a, uh, have a role to play. But if you have a look at the consumption antidepressants and I've put down written parliamentary questions to health ministers in the United Kingdom in 1991 in England alone there were 9 million prescriptions written for antidepressants last year it was 67 million so there's been a massive uptake in uh, the use of antidepressants in the United Kingdom and it's the same in the United States the Australia New Zealand especially in the Anglo-Saxon world but other countries as well so and I and we're not, you know, uh, nine times happier uh, than 1991. For taking these, no, we're not. Uh, if anything, our happiness and our uh, well-being has gone down over that. And I think people are looking for something that's natural, something that's innate, something that's human, and are finding it increasingly in uh, in meditation. And Professor Mark Williams, a professor who taught from Oxford University Mindfulness Centre the man who taught us uh, uh, mindfulness in the House of Commons. He is the, uh, one of three professors, including Zindel Ziegel from Toronto University and John Teasdale from Cambridge University. In 2004, they uh, produced the science that was accepted by the National Health Service in the United Kingdom for mindfulness to be used for repeat episode depression. So the science in the United Kingdom has been proven and accepted and freely available since 2004. The take-up has been minimal, uh, and we we need to look at the the, the reasons for that, the lack of uh, number of you mean buy in from regular people buy in from re- regular people not so
2: much buy in from regular people as it's the health services uh, um, not providing it where they should be uh, yeah. and then there has been like uh, there has been changes there in terms of the National Health Service trying to address that but it's it's more difficult to set up a mindfulness training program with the quality of training to hand out that you pill, need yes. and then to hand yeah. out yeah. a pill
0: so, so just going back to this statistic from the World Health Organization by the 2030 they think depression will be the biggest health burden on the planet yes what I- What do they think is driving that, and what do they think the burden will look like?
1: Um, I don't know if there's been any scientific analysis uh, as to what is bringing this about. I've got my own theories, Uh, and there's there's a a wonderful American sociologist, Robert Putnam, who uh, did did the book. He wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone, Alone, yeah, Mm -hmm. and he he chronicled the decline in community and, uh, and the rise in atomization and alienation. There is uh, a wonderful British journalist and psychiatrist called uh, Oliver James who wrote the book Affluenza. Mm-hmm. He maintains that it is advertising that this is, the, mm-hmm. that this is the main reason. The purpose of an advert is to make you unhappy with what you've got so that you'll purchase something else to make you happier. Uh, there are, well, there's a whole a slew of uh, theories about the, the impact of uh, social media, mm-hmm. of computers, taking our, with every algorithm, algor, they've got algorithms, every time we go on the computer and we do a search, they, they can search deeper and deeper inside an individual's brain to know how we, how we work and sell adverts to that. Uh, there's, the, the new theory is that the impact of, uh, of our gut bacteria. It's a fascinating field. Our gut bacteria, our gut is actually the second brain. 90% of our serotonin. Is produced in our gut mm. and that gut that bacteria has been damaged over the past 50 or 60 years by processed food by overuse of antibiotics and even some say by cesarean sections that 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 micro uh, 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 being, microbiome microbiome that is handed i through. only know
0: that because my wife is an expert <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah absolutely that, you know
1: that, that's that through the when the baby comes through the birth canal the, the, the baby is given the mother's uh, microbiome and So there's many fascinating things, but I think this is an area that is worthy of uh, further research. If we're we're facing this tsunami of mental ill ill health, we need to know the reasons, because it's all right treating the the cause, uh, treating the uh, symptoms with antidepressants or uh, uh, psychological therapies or mindfulness, but we need to get behind what's Mm. causing this, and as politicians especially. You know, we shouldn't be
2: sacrificing our kids on the altar of profitability. Mm. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for mindfulness training to not just ad- address the symptoms. I think um, it addresses the causes more deeply in our own lives, but there's an opportunity for it to address the systemic societal context as well. So, so rather than saying that um, uh, let's have a look on this training course about how... There are nourishing and depleting things in your life, which is a common component of, of, of mindfulness-based stre- stress reduction, which uh, Jon Kabat-Zinn uh, uh, developed and has had most of the uh, evidence base behind it. Um, so, uh, some teachers have already been including the, uh, the the context of people's lives within the container of that environment, sort of bringing it into in, into the inquiry. Um, about the causes of distress and happiness and and how we can change things to make more of one and less of the other uh, but uh, there are lots of innovators now looking about looking at how we can actually ramp that up uh, and um, as chris as chris says that that could be really where the the, the more profound shift uh, comes from longer term.
0: Stay tuned. more of our conversation is on the way after this. You've been. I was looking through some of your materials before we talked, and and one of the you've got a publication coming up. I hope I have this right. It's called "Living on Purpose," and it's about which can you know. I'm just to, to my listeners may sound like a little vague, but what what does that actually mean? But you're actually talking about, and this is your term, a crisis of values, which I think goes at this whole Putnam theory of bowling alone community has dissipated. We are kind of atomized individuals stuck in our uh, curated Instagram feeds, looking at other people's curated Instagram feeds, feeling inferior, not having our mirror neurons uh, activated by actual face-to-face communications with other members of Homo sapiens. And a deeper part of this, uh, a a previous guest on this podcast has referred to something called junk values, that we're taught this myth of Western individualism, that it's we need to just build up ourselves all the time, and that if we're stuck in this kind of selfing mode, uh, then and, and and it's aggravated through what's what has been referred to as ego itching powder. <laughs> of uh, that's not my term; it's a great term of again a, pr- a previous guest that we're we're going to be unhappy, mm-hmm. and it's because we've been taught these junk values like junk food, and that it, ap- it appears to me that you're working on what you call a crisis of value. So are you are we talking about the same
1: thing here? I think that's Jamie's terminology. Do you, do you want to speak to that, Jamie? Yeah,
2: so... Um, <coughs> excuse me. He's going to clear his throat before he <laughs> drops his <laughs> <some> wisdom <laughs> on us. <laughs> yeah, drops are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we... Um, uh, I might just mention another part of the story here in terms of the, the um, mindfulness in politics. Yeah. So in 2013, teaching started in, in the UK Parliament it also started in a couple of other parliaments, like in Sweden. Um, uh, then Chris and his colleagues helped launch it in some other places, like the Netherlands. And since then, we've helped um, politicians to start mindfulness training in about sort of, 10 other national legislatures, um, so France and Ireland and... Uh, Iceland. Iceland and haven't cracked the U.S. yet. Haven't cracked the U.S. I want yet. to talk about that, but we carry we're on. We're waiting, waiting for the invite. <laughs> yeah. It's a separate program. <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: yeah. Gonna be a, it's a hard case, so you need to... You need some, uh, special well, machinery. I
2: think there's some there's some opportunities at state level, and if if we get invited to come and speak to the state legislators, then we'd be we'd be happy.
0: You're to a shoe in in California.
2: That. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So um, so over the years, we've we've been visiting these different places. Last year, we went to sort of seven seven parliaments uh, alone. Back in 2017, we pulled together this um, uh, national congress, not national congress, international congress of uh, of mindful. Uh, politicians or politicians who practice. And uh, we had 40 from 14 countries and we had a, a, a day and a half led by John Kabatzin in, in in Westminster. And it was really interesting in, in, in that session how politicians are talking about the role of this in their lives. Uh, one Italian MP said that, um, a member of parliament, said that um, you know one of the issues is that we do things because, just because there's pressure um, and we, we do things that are out of alignment with, with what we really want to achieve. Uh, because of the the momentum and and the fierceness of uh, of that environment uh and uh, another dutch m p uh esther ohhans said um that uh, she finds that mindfulness helps us to stay m- uh, more in touch with what's most important to her, her values and act in line with that and so and Chris has been you know talking about this as well i'm sure tim Tim and Ryan has uh for, for years so uh it was really these anecdotes that made us think like what is what is going on here let's let's drill into this a little bit more more deeply and so yes we've um, we've spent a, a a year or so at this uh, the organization that I run which is like a policy institute think tank uh, researching interviewing people uh, and pulling together what we think is is um, a case for for mindfulness not as an, as an isolated or it's like a siloed intervention for um, for addiction or for depression or for an anxiety um, but instead a, a fundamental capacity that could uh, help us in society um, be more in tune with what is more, most important to us, what is going to um, serve us uh, and act in line with that. And critically, it comes back to this um, responding creatively, not reacting blindly, um, and, and so or reacting out of conditioning or habit. There's so much like the momentum, the stream of, of our culture is going in one direction. And many of us are kind of waking up and feeling that that's not, that's not right, but it's so difficult to turn against that stream and act in a different way, um, so so yeah, mindfulness training, people rep- rep- are reporting helps them to do that.
0: And but on this crisis of values thing, mm-hmm. that kind of oh, stuck yeah. out to oh, me. Yeah. What's, what's Give me the download on that.
2: Yeah, so so um, there's a, an organisation in the UK called Common Cause, which looks at how we are m- motivated by different value sets. So roughly speaking, there's the intrinsic value set and the extrinsic value set. So intrinsic is like um, I'm. I want to invest in community and love and relationships and meaning and purpose and, and uh, generativity, building stuff, and extrinsic um, values tend to be those things that you were, that you were referencing there. So fame, uh, material wealth, um and um and, and status, and and it looks like from from the research that these inhibit each other. So the more we um, boost one, the other goes down. And so advertising potentially is really spent, you know, a lot of dollars are going into boosting the extrinsic um, value set. However, if you ask people what is most important to you, what do you try and govern your life um, through? 75% of people will say the intrinsic values are more important to me. That's what I want to live in line with. However, they think that everybody else is extrinsically motivated. So you ask them the question, how do other people, you know, um, live their lives, and they say, "Well, they're all extrinsically motivated." About seven, about the same, seventy five percent. So it's kind of like a prisoner's dilemma. It's like I I want these things, but everyone else is out for them for themselves. And we kind of need to have a different conversation about you know um, what it means to be human and what we really want want in life. Uh, and so the, the challenge is that it is going in the wrong direction. as from my from my point of view, we are getting more extrinsically motivated over over time. So I think we have have a conversation about and, and surface. What what we really want have a conversation about values, make it explicit, rather than letting the um, the, the the algorithm designers yeah. to you know, dictate it for us. And uh,
1: this is not new. Robert Kennedy uh, w- w- was talking about uh, uh, measuring things in monetary terms back in the nineteen sixties. You know, and the, the true things, the true things of value back in mm-hmm. the nineteen sixties, and now and forever, is is marriage and family and relationship, and we seem to have lost sight of that you know, through pursuing uh, materialism. I mean, when 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 my... I've got a 24-year-old daughter, Sarah, now. When she was born and I held her in my hands, I I looked at her and I didn't say, I think, I want you to be a chief executive. I want you to be the prime minister of my country. I looked at her and said, I want you to be a happy child, a happy baby and a happy adult. And, uh, you know, we're far from our natures. And this isn't... There was a W.H. Auden, wrote a, a, a poem, I think he got a, a Nobel Prize for it in 1947, The Age of Anxiety. Uh, there was a book written called, uh, by a trisman, I think, in 1953, called The, the Lonely Crowd. We're, we're far from our natures and it's about reconnecting. And for me, mindfulness, uh, you know, you're supposed to say what is your intention every time you, 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 you go into mindfulness. And for me, it's about connection. It's about connection with myself, uh, it's about connection with the people around me, the ones I love, the ones I'm indifferent to, and the ones I don't like. And it's about connection, indeed, to uh, to the planet, without sounding too fluffy, to the universe. You know, I am made of the same stuff as meteors, comets and stars. And I think sometimes we are so focused downwards on, I've got to have this, I've got to have that, I've got to get here, I've got to get there, that we forget to look upwards and realise, you know, there's big things going on out there. We are a speck on a piece of dust, in the cosmos and i think that appreciation that there are bigger things than ourselves and our egos uh n- n- needs to be felt by individuals the seven billion people on this planet because it's the only way we're going to rescue it
0: three things come to mind listening to you talk one is there is a quote that i think i used in a book uh i don't remember where i got it from that if you're always looking around you're never looking up or if you're never looking up you're always looking around yep. Uh, so and the, the based on that i was just going to say there is some research that I, can, I don't i can't cite chapter and verse but uh that shows that the feeling of awe awe yeah. can lead to better behavior and happiness so that the sense mm-hmm. of being a speck in the cosmos or uh, there's a, an incredible pic, uh, picture that's a sc- the, the the wallpaper on my home computer which is called pale blue dot and it's a picture of earth from outer space and all it is is a pale blue dot and you really get a sense of all of our, I think it was uh, Carl Sagan talks, rhapsodizes about this picture, about all of our dramas, everything in human history has played out in what is, at best, a pale blue dot for, to most of the rest yep. of the universe, and probably invisible to the rest of it, really. Um, the, the third thing I want to say, though, is all of this sounds good in theory, but I just think about my own life. I'm a TV newsman. You know, I have to have some... Public footprint. I have to have a social media profile. I have to. I write books. I want them to sell, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. So you're a politician. You got to uh, run for re-election. In, so. in, a,
1: in a democracy, you have got to say, "Vote, vote for me. Yes. I'm a good that guy. Yeah. Look over here. I'm here, uh, and I uh, I raised this issue because it was worrying me for a number of years with uh, Professor Mark Williams, and uh, I said, in a democracy, we have to project ourselves. We have to say, my party's better than that party. I'm a good person in my party. that that involves ego, that involves projecting yourself. He said, and it always comes down to this, it's about intention. Why are you doing that? And if it's just about your ego, if it's not about wanting to create a better you, a better community, a better society, a better world, then perhaps your ego is out of control. Um, So it's about intention. So, Mm you know, there's nothing wrong with ego. There's no ego, there's nothing wrong with anger. Really, If if it's it's how we direct it for Mm -hmm. the purpose and the intention of our ego or our anger and many of the other uh, values that we think could be potentially do negative. If
0: you think it's a politician, I'll, I'll go first. I'll say for me as a public figure, I – you know, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, talks about motivation, another word for intention, I think, although the Buddhists are pretty persnickety about language. So there may be some <laughs> difference in there, but motivation it runs along a spectrum – so, um, you know, we're, there's, and it's going to be messy. So it's going to run from the high-minded to the crass. Mm-hmm. And so for me, as I think about what I, why I do what I do, why do I have a podcast? Why am I writing more books? Why do I, you know, maniacally go on television, wear makeup and all this other stuff? Why do I do – why do I give speeches? Why do I do all that? On the high-minded end of it is, you know, I do I do think it meant, you know, journalism and, and mindfulness, my two professional pursuits, can be healing forces on the planet. Um, but am I? Do I also like money and attention? Yes, and that hasn't gone away just because I've started no. doing meditation. So I ask you, as a politician, has that stuff, has the sort of negative aspects of the ego gone away, or is your intention pure now after the, all this meditation?
1: They're, they're more in balance than, than uh, you know. I, I spoke at the mm. United Nations when I was twelve years old. I drew, did a project on the United Nations, and I drew a lovely picture of the UN building, and I started my speech on Friday about that. And so you just spoke at the United Nations. i just spoke say. on the United You're Nations. You're here in New York because you just yep. spoke at the United uh, Nations. Uh, on Friday, and I, I introduced my uh, my speech with that, and it was my <laughs> ego had been stroked. I was drawing this <laughs> picture 48 years ago, and, uh, the, the, and 48 years later, I'm speaking at the United Nations, and I did feel something special. And I can't lie about that. But it's 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 the purpose for which I was there, and that if we can get the United Nations as a representative of 193 countries around the world to explore mindfulness and use it as an intervention to, to benefit the world, then that for me is a noble cause. You know? And I, you know, I did get a buzz out of it. I, I can't deny that. So the
0: buzz is there, and I, I'll, I'll let you jump in, in a second because Jamie looks like he, he's going to clear his throat and drop some more <laughs> <laughs> um, But the, So the buzz is there. Uh, um, I'm asking these questions for completely self-interested purposes because I'm trying to feel better about my ego, so to, just <laughs> just to be open. Yeah. Um, the buzz is there, but it's it, and it doesn't mean you can't, you know, want the attention or the votes or whatever it is. But it's a it's it's more in balance with what really
1: matters. Yes, mm. a, a, absolutely. You know, mm. and, and uh, in politics, you can see and most people, virtually everybody, goes into politics for the right reasons to improve the world. But you can sometimes think you, you get taken along by it, and power is power. Power corrupts, yes, and yes. absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, Absolutely yes. as that Lord Acton said, um, but sometimes you can see people who have come in as decent people, but they they start to tr- go ahead by treading on the on the heads of of, of their colleagues, uh, and uh, and getting the promotion becomes you know the great thing, but there's nothing as X as an ex politician, you know, and one minute you can be up, and I know because I lost my seat in uh, in 2015 after 18 years as a as a member of parliament, I lost my seat. Um, and you can be a prime minister, and then you're gone. Did you win it back? I Were- won it back, yes. Okay. Uh, the prime Prime minister, Theresa May, who had a majority in parliament, decided that she wanted a bigger majority. She's a conservative MP, so she called an election to increase the size of the majority. She lost the majority, and I got back in. So what was that like for you after? A- it was
0: amazing. No, no, what was it like, the bad part? The, <laughs> the-, yeah,
1: the bad part. Well, John Cabot's in. In 2012, said to me, he's one of my heroes on the planet. We should just say who he is because I think it, most people most people know who
0: he is. Yeah. But in, in listen to this podcast, but he's a former MIT microbiologist who basically invented what's called mindfulness based stress reduction (MBSR), which allowed meditation to get into boardrooms and locker rooms and prisons and all that because he secularized Buddhist meditation. I think he is well, he's a friend, so take with, with a grain of salt. But I think he's a historical figure and this. Development of MBSR, um, uh, I think, will be a turning could be a, a positive turning point in
1: human relations. Uh, absolutely. And I think he's, he's worthy of a, 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 a Nobel Prize for the work that he's done, the pioneering work he's done. And interestingly, you should say that there's a British historian called Toynbee who said, when we look back on the 20th century, the greatest thing that we will see is when Eastern uh, wisdom is being met by Western science. And I think we're living in that moment now. Um, so the, the point was, uh, the question was, which is, a what, scary, was, what, what, what was, what, was that like? like so yeah, John Kabat-Zinn so, said something yeah, so, to you? So John Kabat-Zinn said to me, uh, I think 2012, 13, Chris, a word of advice, work on your parachute before you need to open it. Mm. And I, and I had been working on my parachute for six years and when I lost in 2015, he's such a big hearted man. Uh, he emailed me and said, Chris, sorry to see you've lost your seat. How are you getting on? And I emailed him back. I said, John, I took your advice. I worked on my my parachute. Uh, I've opened it and it works. And uh, it worked for me. In 2015, I thought I'd be thrown completely off balance and I wasn't. I was absolutely amazed. Of course, I I took the knock. A few sleepless nights, but then I got on with my life. I, if, if, if anything, when I look back on that two-year period when I was out, that gave me a new life, uh, a new lease of life, to visit the Australian Parliament, the French Parliament three times, uh, the Irish Parliament, and and to, he- to help spread mindfulness in those legislatures around the world. You know, it, it, that two-year period is, is one of the highlights of my life. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, out, out of badness came good.
2: <clears throat> Jamie, clear your throat. <clears> throat> <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm tracking back a bit here, but I just wanted to tar- clarify that um, I wasn't sort of setting up a binary thing between the intrinsic and the extrinsic motivations. So so it's not like we have good people and bad people or we have you know, selfish people or altruistic people, that we have both of these forces in our lives. It's just that um, uh, people will select which ones are, are on the whole more important. And, you know, a lot, a lot of great... Beautiful things have been done in the in the name of wanting recognition. It's just that that recognition for could, could be for stuff which is positive for the community, positive for the for the for the for society, uh, rather than just uh, look at me. I have more stuff than you.
0: Yeah, no, that's well said. It's about balance. It's, mm-hmm. it's about balance. Um, uh, let me ask you about the United States. So. Because I promised to do this earlier, and I really want to do it. Um, I know you're – I assume you're both familiar that with the fact that we have a Congress here. Um, otherwise, we would be a colony of yours. <laughs> um, and our Congress and our politics generally is quite nasty right now. I find it very disturbing personally as, a, as an American, the, the kind of level of discourse, both in the, in the polity at large but also specifically in the Congress. And it's not new – I mean, we've been at each other's throats since the 1776, but it's at a, I would say, another sort of uh, low ebb. And so you you look at our Congress. Do you think there's any way you can get a camel's nose under the tent here and get some mindfulness in? And, and is there any way to do better than my uh, friend Tim Ryan has been able to do?
1: Um, well, Tim Ryan wrote a marvelous book called Mindful Nation which I think has uh, been changed now to Healing Nation. Healing America. Right? He- Healing America. Uh, he- That's his campaign uh, manifesto. Oh, now? Yeah, okay. uh, ab- absolutely. I think, right? <laughs> I- I don't and know. Th- that book, at the end of each chapter, and it deals with uh, mind- uh, mindfulness in education, mindfulness in health, mindfulness in the prisons. He-, he lists eight things that the reader could do to promote mindfulness. So I-, I would say, you know, mindfulness doesn't have to come from the top. It doesn't have to come from a parliament or a congress. It can come from below as well, and I think the very fact that Jamie said 15% of Americans meditate, 35% of them practice yoga, there is a yearning out there, a realisation that they are, as individuals, their families are disconnected, and they want something. So that pressure could come from below if people were to read uh, Tim's book and and, and act upon that and ask their governor if they will come and sit and meditate with a class of eight and nine-year-olds and feel some peace. So it doesn't have to come from the top. It could from, come from state, le- state level. It could come from city level. And there are three uh, projects now to create mindfulness, mindful cities uh, I- in the U.S. So it hasn't got to come from – those are, Jamie, the three cities?
2: Um, well, two of them aren't public yet. So oh, sorry. They recently launched the uh, Flint, Michigan, mindful city. Flint, group. Michigan, yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah so – even if even if uh, i'm gathering you you're, you're telling me even if the congress is hopeless um it can happen in many ways
1: it can and, and, and maybe if if there's a lack of interest from uh, the right in, in congress we can bring over some politicians from other countries
0: oh well actually i know people on the right um i get i don't know if it's public but i know people yeah. on the right who are interested in this stuff i don't know if it's partisan as much as it is just not wanting to be seen as looking weird or just not being interested full stop. Maybe there's an idea that it's going to reduce your edge. I don't know what it is, but it hasn't, doesn't appear to have taken hold.
1: Yeah, Um, but but it has in other areas of the uh, the globe, and it's in some countries it's been led by the right. The first parliament to uh, introduce mindfulness practice was the Swedish parliament, and it was uh, led by a wonderful woman called Anne-Marie Broden, who was on uh, on the right uh, in Wales, it's been led by uh, Darren Miller, a, a conservative assembly member. You know, these are these are these are human uh, human gifts that have appeal that, that appeal to across the spectrum. They're in there in every wisdom tradition that's ever existed, in native uh, in native practices, in you know, the Maoris or the Aborigines or the, Na- the Native Americans. It's there. It's uh, people can feel it and they want it.
0: So, when uh, we're talking about. Partis- kind of, we kind of made a, a glancing blow there at, at partisanship, and that it reminds me of something else I came across in the briefing materials that were given to me before I sat down with you guys, which is that in Wales, a mindfulness course has been developed specifically to help policymakers consider their own objectivity and yep. biases. So I'm really interested in that because I, I think a lot of what's going on, a lot of what's wrong with our culture here domestically in the U.S., but globally as well is – the otherizing of, of people uh, based on pigmentation, political beliefs, gender, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in turn, if we're trying to engender better behavior, getting people to be okay, understand that they have biases and not so owned by them is a very intriguing idea. So how's it going in Wales?
1: Uh, well, that's, that's a, um, a researcher called Rachel Lilly from Aberystwyth University, and she's been taking top-flight Welsh civil servants on a course – uh, using mindfulness to to spot their bias and to compensate for that bias, so to open their mind and the heart and the soul, uh, to to make sure that what they're delivering in terms of policy terms uh, has been as far as possible their own individual biases has been taken out of that as, as, as senior policymakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've visited uh, Rachel Lilly, myself, and Becca Crane, who's from the Bangor, uh, Ox- uh, Bangor Mindfulness Centre went to see the Prime Minister of Wales about this, and he's interested. Um, so there's, there's big hope there. And what we hope is that where best practice emerges, whether it be in Wales with civil servants, whether it be with the Marines, uh, mindfulness in the Marines in, the, uh, in America, or the American penal system where uh, mindfulness has been introduced, that we can spot this best practice and give it to politicians who practice mindfulness around the world so that they can look at the science, the best practice, and roll it out in their own country.
2: Mm, I, I think the the program uh, in Wales offers a bit of hope for the U.S. Congress as well, because we're framing mindfulness training in the context of decision making um, of, of performance as as leaders. So rather than coming in and saying, "Here's a here's a well being course," or "Here's some sort of stillness to help you deal with stuff," it's like, "Here's how we can all be better politicians and and better leaders." Uh, so some of the um, members of Parliament in in uh, in London, talk about how mindfulness is really helpful for public speaking or helpful for uh, getting over uh, um, uh, an interview that didn't go so well and sort of forgiving yourself and and, and getting on with the business of the day. Uh, and so there are ways in which we can we can target it to that uh, the, the job of governance uh, to help frame it in a way that might 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 connect with them.
0: Uh, Some of the other uh, framings or some of the other benefits that have emerged, I think, from your research or qualitative research of talking to the members of parliament is they're better at focusing, given the sort of, uh, you know, uh, the amount of briefing papers and tweets and whatever coming their way. Impulse control, kindness, metacognition, meaning, you know, perspective of being aware that they have emotions. Therefore, they don't have to be so owned by them. So it sounds like the people who are taking this course are getting a lot out of it.
2: Exactly. And we have those we have those stories now. We can come and sort of tell people um, Chris can you know tell um uh, his uh, his his colleagues in other countries look this is having a really yeah you know, tangible uh, uh, impact on our our working lives. One of the things that's just uh, just really uh, touched me is is how difficult politicians jobs were. I mean I mm. didn't I didn't get into politics um, or in, in, into policy making um, because it 's uh, been a long term uh, ambition found myself here because i care so much about widening access to to mindfulness training i 've just been uh, meeting so many politicians feeling how how difficult a role that they they have in the uk anyway it 's a really sort of toxic relationship between public and uh, between the public and uh, uh, and uh, and politicians. And so, seeing how mindfulness training helps them to deal with just an unbelievable amount of information they have to absorb in order to do their do their jobs, uh, in order to have that kind of th- thick skin, um, has uh, yeah has just seeing their humanity and, and seeing how tough it is has been uh, been a really important part of this. The um, the thing amongst there that amongst those benefits I'd like to to pick up on though is is this idea of of metacognition of uh, having a better perspective. On our, our our thoughts and emotions, so if we are, are, are our ideas, um, then if that idea is challenged, then we see it as a, a personal offense and a personal attack. If we can separate ourselves a little bit from from that idea, you and I can critique it from a bit of, bit, bit of distance. so it's not me you you're attacking it's, it's, it's the idea, idea itself. I think that's one of the kind of the, the longer term hopes really is that we have a bit of maturity. Uh, around um, uh, discourse, and that could be the mechanism that under, underpins this disagreeing better uh, effect, which uh, has been reported.
1: And John Cabot in uh, one of one of his many lines, he said that uh, man uh, uh, is homo sapien, sapien, the man
0: who is aware that he is aware. I use that line all the time. I yeah. don't give him any credit, but I use it all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it may, it may not have been John's. It's, no, it is. It's, 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 it's where I heard it. the yes. first time I ever heard from it. And we should recognise that. What, what we're saying here, in, in essence, is th- these are. It, this is being about being human, mm-hmm. about being true to our roots. That's a beautiful place to leave it. Um, thank you both
0: for doing this. Thank you for behaving. I know you like to yell. Scream, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad that Chris didn't pound the table. Ride. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> As we say in Parliament. <laughs> Before we go, um, just to, we do this thing at the end of the show, which is a uh, plug zone. So, just can you can you list off if if people want to get information on either of you individually or on the work you're doing, where can they go?
2: So. Uh, the mindfulness initiative uh, has a website where you can find out about the, the politicians the all party group and about um our broader work uh, and the url for that is themindfulnessinitiative.org and uh, you can download the mindful nation uk report um our, our workplace focused uh, document building the case for mindfulness in the workplace um as well as find links to the um the kind of academic paper that 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 uh, reviews a lot of those those benefits that you mentioned that politicians are reporting.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much. A pleasure to sit with you. Yeah, really thank good. You. Thank you. Again, big thanks to Chris and Jamie. Uh, I, I do want to say just as a quick little fact here that Chris, he gave out his email address. Um, he, he contacted me later to say he gave out the not the exact right one. So here's the right one if you've got a pen. We'll put this in the show notes too. Ruan C, so that's R-U-A-N-E-C at parliament.uk. R-U-A-N-E-C at Parliament.uk. uk Always dicey to give your email address out publicly, but I respect them for doing it. Um, that was a fun episode. Let's uh, let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, it's Tim from
3: Leamington, Ontario, Canada. Love the app. Love uh, love 10% Happier. Love the podcast. Uh, my question specifically is, when I'm meditating and I'm focusing on the breath, and I get caught in a train and I keep coming back to the breath, Lots of times I'll I'll switch focus to my hands as a as a focal point, for example, and yeah, just be really concentrating on that. Get caught in the train, come back to my hands. eat caught in the train, come back to my hands. So my question is just, is that is that good? Is that all right? Is that is that proper meditation form, or should I just? Am I switching? Am I cheating when I do it this way? Uh, is it better for me just to come back to my breath? On a side note, uh, love the app. Love everything about it. I'm married, have, uh, have a 16-year-old that I'm teaching how to drive, and we come back from a stressful driving experience. Neither one of us were very happy, and uh, my wife said, you know what, you you, you got to switch from meditation, you got to take yoga, you got to get better at this. And it was funny, because I walked away smiling at myself, thinking, this must be working a little bit. I must be 10% better for somebody to be noticing and suggesting something that would make me even better than what I am right now. And uh, regardless, I, I know that I enjoy it, I know that I feel better. It's part of my habit every morning, and uh, I thank you for it and for talking a little bit about it on Good Morning America. So a couple plugs to you. Hope you guys are all having a great day. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Take care.
0: Bye. Really appreciate it, Tim. Thank you very much. Glad to hear it's working for you. So let me get to your question. Absolutely, it's fine. Using the sensations in your hands as an object of meditation is totally kosher. I have a couple more things to say about it. One is that uh, – and this uh, this note comes from Ray Hausman, who is the chief of our coaching unit. I don't know if I'm giving her the right title. But anyway, that's essentially her function. She's the boss of our coaches. Uh, now, uh, m- even many users of the app are unaware that we have these coaches who you can text with uh, through right through your app, and they will answer your questions as long as you want. Uh, these are experienced meditators. Not This is not a chat bot. Experienced meditators who love taking questions from our users, and they will answer any question you have. So Ray's actually going to help me start answering some of these questions, and she's brilliant. So that's good for me and for anybody who listens to me. Um, and her point when she heard you ask this question about uh, focusing on the hands is that over time, you may want to extend that beyond the hands to the whole body because that can give you a sort of more panoramic awareness of even sort of less sensitive areas of the body where it's harder to feel the sensations, at least at first. And this can just boost your ability to pay attention, especially as you move through the day and subtly painful things in your body uh, can impact your behavior sometimes subconsciously. The other thing I'd like to say is that I think it makes sense to do some switching in meditation between, uh, you know, if you're trying to stay with the breath and you're having trouble with that and you might want to move to your hands or you might want to move to an open awareness. But I would, and this I'm just cribbing from my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who said things like this to me. You might want to be careful of switching too rapidly because that can create a kind of I don't know, um, uh, a sense of uh, a lack of orderliness in your meditation. So I think when you do it, you want to be doing it with some kind of in a a, a somewhat stately fashion so that you're not all over the place. But so that's the long answer. The short answer is what you're doing is great. The long answer is that over time, you may want to um, move beyond the hands and develop awareness all over your body. And just keep an eye on how rapidly you're switching between the breath and the hands slash body. Thanks again, Tim. Really appreciate it. Let's go to the second voicemail.
3: Hi, Dan. This is Amy from Montana. I have a question regarding decision-making and types of meditation. If you're really struggling with a big life decision, is there a certain type of meditation or a way of meditation that can really help you kind of get in touch with your inner Guide or your inner answer, anything you have to offer would be great. Thanks so much for all you do, Dan. Have a great day.
0: I do have something to say. As usual, this is stolen from somebody else. Um, that probably makes it better than whatever I would make up. I was talking about this very issue with Joseph Goldstein, um, who's a uh, obviously a big big teacher on the Ten Percent Happier app and a big figure in my life, and he mentioned a process uh, that I haven't actually tried that much because I'm a horrible student, clearly, but I, I would pass it along to you as something you might try, which is that if you've got something you're trying to figure out, a creative issue you're working on or a decision in your life or if you're trying to discern. In my case, sometimes I was trying to think, like, what are my real motives for an act action I'm considering? At the beginning of a meditation, per Joseph, maybe just seed your mind with the question why am i about to do this should i do this next thing seed your mind with the question but then and this is tricky drop the question you are not then and, and meditate as you normally would if you're on your breath you're watching your breath come in and go out and every time you get distracted start again you are not this is not a contemplation exercise where you're sitting and Mulling over the decision. You are purely just meditating, but you're so you're putting your, your mind in a meditative space, which is all about um, uh, endeavoring gently to focus on one thing at a time. And then when you get distracted, kind of in a friendly way, bring your attention back to whatever it is you're trying to focus on your breath, the feeling of your hands, whatever, whatever. So again, you are not sitting there affirmatively deciding to think about the decision. It's just that you have put it into your mind stream in a general way, and then you go about your meditation. And Joseph's theory is, and I I assume this is based on his own personal experience, that doing this may put you into a space where you can make connections that you wouldn't be able to make if you were sort of pacing around actively thinking about something, which, by the way, we're not ruling out. You you can and should do that too. But this is another way to kind of put your mind into a – Different kind of zone that might allow for the emergence of new and, and different thoughts. The aforementioned Ray Hausman weighed on this, weighed in on this too, that there's, her argument is that there's a real power to not knowing this. We don't like this feeling of not knowing something. We kind of, we, we rush to an answer. Uh, but if you can sit with that ambiguity, it can lead to, as she says, a deeper discernment. And I agree with that, that if you can be OK with the tension of not knowing and just sit with it for a little while, sometimes an answer will emerge. It may not may not be the answer you want. It may, ha- may not happen on your timetable. It may not work at all. But these are all things to play with. So thanks for that question. Two great questions this week. Really appreciate it. Big thanks to all the folks who make this podcast possible. Ryan Kessler. Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Mike's working the boards today, Mike D. Big thanks, of course, as always, seriously to the podcast insiders. Those are the podcast listeners who give us feedback every week. I really love that and I'm very grateful. And uh, we will be back next Wednesday with uh, another show for you. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash
3: survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx you know.
4: The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi.